Welcome to the Potter's Roundtable, a monthly podcast where we share our passion for the ceramic arts and a collection of topics specific to potters. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Enjoy the show. I want to welcome you all to today's, today's meeting, today's discussion. Um, the topic today is challenges in firing ceramics. And it's really solving problems with, there are two kinds of problems that you have when you fire ceramics. Um, there are problems where, we, that, there are problems when you're doing a firing that result actually in defects on the wear. And there are also problems that you can have firing that really may or may not show up on the wear. It's just a problem maybe with operating the kiln. So that's what we're gonna talk about today. Um, there are other, and as you're probably aware, there are other sources of defects in ceramics, not just the firing, but the clay can also be the origin of, of defects in ceramics, as well as the glaze. So all of these things can interact to produce a, a defect. Before we get into that, I just want to mention next month's topic. Next month's topic is going to be about simple math calculations that you use in the pottery studio. Um, and we're not going to go into some of the in-depth calculations like converting Seeger formula to a regular recipe because there are computer programs available for those and just about, I don't know anybody that does them longhand anymore. I used to do them longhand, but it's tedious. But there are a lot of simple ones that you can use, that just use everyday, everyday examples. Um, an example would be, for instance, if you don't have enough of, a, of an ingredient to make a, a recipe, but you still want to make up the recipe, how can you adjust the, the, the calculations so that you can use up all of that small amount that you have and still make up the balanced recipe? Things like that. So we'll, we'll talk about, that'll be next month's topic. Okay, so challenges in firing ceramics. Um, let's, let's talk first about kiln performance problems because there are two, there are, there are, there are two different, actually there are two different, um, as I mentioned, these two different categories. The performance that where the, the kiln may have, a, you may have a problem just with the firing and it may cause a defect or it might not cause a defect, but it's still, it's still a problem with the firing. This, today's session is kind of a wrap-up for what we've been talking about the last three months. We've been doing, we did a series where we, had, we talked about, for three months, we talked about the three main kinds of firing. First, we talked about wood firing, and we talked about gas, and we talked about electric. So I thought this would be a good wrap-up session to bring all those issues together and talk about com problems that are common, in some cases, to all three types of firing and how they result in defects that we see in the pottery. So problems related to kiln operation. This is up here just sort of as, I, did, I gave this talk about 10 years ago at a conference out in Front Royal. So that's when I had these prepared because it was a large hall. And so I wanted, this way people can sort of follow along what we're talking about. So first I'm gonna talk about electrical, electrical kiln firing and just some common problems. One of the problems, again, this is thinking about the operation, whether, not so much about whether it causes a defect directly anyway. So one of the, first, one of the common things with electrical kilns is a non-uniform temperature distribution. Typically from top to bottom, um, but also radially, that it's, it's fairly common on a larger kiln that the outside of the shells will appear to be hotter than the center of the shells. Well, the cause of this, if you don't have a downdraft fan in an electric kiln, you know these new fans where they pull the air down, then it's, it's very normal to have the top of the kiln to be very often at least a cone hotter than the bottom of the kiln. This is just due to natural convection. The hot air and hot gases rise, and the, and the, and the kiln tends to be hotter at the top. Um, another cause of the non-uniform distribution can also be aging elements, is that even aside from the convection, if one of the elements, um, especially on the bottom, for example, isn't, isn't functioning properly or it's not heating up as much, 
that even adds to the, to the temperature gradient that you get because the bottom, because of the elements, the bottom isn't getting as hot as the top. Um, and another, another feature that can contribute to that is also the way you stack the kiln. If the kiln isn't stacking pro stacked properly, then you can even compound that thing. One of the, especially if you have a downdraft kiln, you don't want to, if you don't have one, you don't want to put closely spaced shelves at the bottom. Because again, in that case, the kiln is tending to heat up not as, as readily on the bottom. And if you have closely spaced shelves, they heat up even more slowly. So if you don't have a downdraft fan and you put closely spaced shelves at the bottom, you're going to exaggerate the temperature difference between the top and the bottom. So it's a good idea, in that case, to put some open shelves at the bottom, again, if you don't have the fan. The nice thing about these downdraft fans, aside from the fact that they get the fumes out of the kiln, is that they really even out the temperature profile. With one of those fans now, you, you, there, there virtually is very little difference in temperature now between the top and the bottom of the kiln, because it's very gently pulling the hot gases and the hot air down through the bottom, so it evens it out. Another common problem with electrical kilns is corrosion of the bricks and the metal. And this is actually due to the fumes given off from the clay. I've got some good examples here. The fumes given off from the clay and the, um, and the glazes when they're fired. And the, the, one of the main fumes, types of fume that comes off is, sul is sulfur, sulfur oxides from impurities in the clay. And when they meet the air, they form sulfuric acid. This is the same kind of acid you have in your car battery. It's a really strong acid, and it eats the metal, it eats all the metal parts that it's supposed to, and it actually attacks the brick. And I've got some examples here I can pass around. This is a thermocouple. This is the end of the thermocouple, um, and this was just a fairly common type K thermocouple that's present in a lot of kilns. This is the bead, the part that would stick into the kiln. And if you look at it, you'll see that the wire is, is very, compared to, this is the, these, these are the wires sticking out the back end. Compare the thickness here to the back end, and you can see that the wires have basically been corroded. They've been eaten by the fumes in the kiln. And at some point, this, and this was removed because at this point the, the, the thermocouple wasn't working properly, but the, the, the wires are basically being corroded and just eaten away by the fumes in the kiln. And here's another example. This is, a, this is the tube, you, probably, you may recognize it from a kiln sitter, and this is the outside where it mounts on the kiln, and this is the part that sticks in. This, 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 this ceramic tube was actually attacked by the acid in the kiln, and you can see the, rust, the, the, the fixture that held it into the kiln was completely rusted away, and the ceramic tube was actually attacked. And again, this is, and the reason why this is, this is in this location is because this is, where the, the, this is on the outside of the wall of the kiln, so this is where the, the acid fumes from the inside of the kiln met the air on the outside of the kiln, and the air has the moisture in it. So right there, where the, where the gas and the air met, it formed the sulfuric acid. And it, it just ate away the ceramic and, ate, and ate, just completely ate the metal, right? The, the supporting metal that holds it. So the corrosion, the corrosion is, is, is really not likely to result directly in any kind of um, defect, with one exception that I'll show you in a minute, any kind of defect on the pots, but it's certainly going to affect the the operation of the kiln. Like in this case, the thermocouple fit, wasn't operating properly because of the corrosion. So it, the, the thermocouple failed because of that. Well, did that happen over time? Yes, over a long period of time. Yeah. And this, this also, this is an example, this is a bare thermocouple where, because these are the actual, the wires. A lot of thermocouples have a protective ceramic tube over them, like a little test tube, and it shields the thermocouple from the fumes. So this is a combination of, this is the, the less expensive type of thermocouple, this is the type K, which is not very resistant to fumes, and it didn't have the protective tube over it. 
And a lot of thermocouples now have a lot, and a lot of the kilns come with, if you, if you look inside your kiln, if you have a newer kiln, they have a closed end tube which protects the thermocouple from some of the fumes. So this wouldn't, this wouldn't be as likely to happen. One of, the, one of the defects that can happen from this corrosion, though, is this. This is an example of a little dish that was sitting on a shelf underneath the thermocouple. And when the thermocouple corroded, chunks of the, of the oxide landed on the pot. So they fell down, and because this, you know, the thermocouple was hanging over the shelf. So these are little bits of the metal that, that fell off the thermocouple. Yeah, some, some big pieces fell, and they, and they landed right on the glaze and ruined the pot. Is it a problem to touch it? Pardon? Is, is, is it still active acid, or has it like reacted? And is it no, it's just it melted into, it was, it was basically, you know, iron ox, the oxides the oxide. of the metal. It was the rust, it was the, oh. essentially the corrosion products from this, they fell off and landed in the, in the glaze and got stuck in the glaze. Oh. So there's a case where, a rare case, but there's a case where the corrosion of the metal actually caused a defect in the, in the pot that happened to be sitting underneath the, therm, the thermocouple. Is it okay to touch those? Yeah, sure. Yeah, because they, I mean, it's not, they're not acid anymore. They're just, it's just, it, it's, it's long since been neutralized. If we, if we're in our own kiln and this happens, should we avoid touching it? No, because it's, 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 I've never seen it to the point where it actually condenses on the surface. Usually, because it's like a, it's like a sulfuric acid gas or mist almost. So it's, I've never seen it where it's actually wet or anything like that. Um, and usually, if it's wet, don't touch it. yeah, if it's wet, don't touch it. But it, I wouldn't, it wouldn't, chances are it wouldn't be wet. It's not that concentrated, but over a long period of time, it, it definitely, you know, it, it has an effect on the bricks. The other thing you'll see on the bricks is, and it's kind of strange, but on the kiln, when the fumes leak out and they leak through, because the bricks are porous, right? It's a soft brick. So the fumes come out through the brick, and they don't actually attack the brick on, until they get to the outside of the brick. You, think, you might think, well, the fumes from the inside attack the inside of the brick. They don't. They attack the outside of the brick, because that's where the fumes go through the brick, and then they meet the air from the outside that has the moisture in it. So it's when the, it's when the sulfur gases meet the moisture in the air that the sulfuric acid forms. So I've seen old kilns, and you see it a lot of times when you lift the lid, the outer portion of the brick right against the metal shell looks kind of crumbly. That's from the acid attack. Because it's essentially eating its way in from the outside where it meets the moisture. What causes more corrosion, glaze fires or a bisque fire? Bisque fire, I'd say, offhand, because that's where you're really doing, you're, essentially you're cleaning up the clay. You're getting rid of all, a lot of the carbon and a lot of the sulfur, like the minerals, that, the sulfur minerals in it. So I say in general, it's gonna be the bisque. Unless, you have, you know, unless you're firing glazes that contain a lot of sort of potentially corrosive materials in the glaze, but I think, I think more than likely it's the bisque. Um, Another, another, another problem with electrical kilns, I put as sitter timing, is basically this, the, if you're using the kiln sitter to actually control your firing, which you really shouldn't, but the kiln sitter can shut off too early or shut off too late. And there are a lot of, there are a lot of ways that a kiln sitter can, can, can be improperly you know, set up. It really was, to be honest, it was never made to actually run a kiln, a kiln firing. It was made as a safety device, as a backup, so that if the kiln didn't shut off, and let's say as a potter you weren't there, you had to leave or something like that, that the kiln wouldn't just keep going and melt down, the kiln would shut off. But they're really not precise enough to actually control the firing. You should be firing with, with a cone pack, but they were made as a backup. But a lot of people still use them as, a, as an actual you know, way to control the firing. And the problem with, with in a lot of cases is, even if there's nothing, nothing accidental that happens, is the kiln sitter may be out of adjustment. And there are different ways that you can actually, there's a, there's a certain 
angle at which the, when that, you know, the little rod on the top of the kiln, they're like two supports, and then there's a rod that drops down. There's a certain point at which the kiln sitter is supposed to shut off of the location of the rod relative to those two supports. And there's a, when you, if you got the kiln new, there was a little, I'll pass this around, there was a little um, gauge that came with the kiln, and this is actually used for, for adjusting the kiln sitter. And I was telling Dennis earlier this morning, a lot of times when you buy a new kiln, this comes shipped on the kiln sitter, and people think it's just a packing device and they throw it away. Where actually, this is, the, this is the gauge that you use to adjust the kiln sitter. So it comes shipped on it so that it, it doesn't bounce around, but you need to save it. And if, you, if you, you look at this, you'll see there's a hole and then two, two holes in the side. That's meant, you, you, the idea is you slide that over the rod and the two prongs that support the cone, and then you make an adjustment on the outside so that when the rod is in that position, that's when it shuts off. So you can adjust the, sort of the sensitivity or the position when the kiln sitter shuts off, how much the rod bends when it shuts off, and this is how you do it. So if you haven't seen one of those before, I think you can still buy them um, as a separate thing, but they, they come with every new kiln sitter. And I know a lot of people just, you know, they, they thought it was part of the packing, so they threw it away. So, and, and one of the other, aside, so aside from the fact that the kiln sitter should be adjusted so that there's a certain amount of movement when it shuts off. A lot of other things can happen. The cone, for example, if you put it too close to the end of the porcelain, when it, get, it'll, it gets slightly soft, it'll actually stick to the end of the porcelain and then it doesn't move. Or sometimes what happens is after a while, the, the parts of the kiln sitter that stick in get corroded from the fumes and then when the, kiln, when the cone starts to soften and melt, it also sticks to those and it doesn't move. So a good trick that helps with that is you should put kiln wash on your kiln sitter. If you have a little bit of kiln wash, you should paint the under, under part of the rod and the blades with a little bit of just a thin coating of kiln sitter so that when the cone starts to melt or get soft, it doesn't stick in place, it can slide because it has to slide down in order, in order to bend. So it's a good idea. Touch up the, kiln, the, the, the ends of the, the points with a little bit of, uh, of kiln wash. Okay, let's, and let's go... By the way, I wanted to mention also, if you have any questions as we go along, you know, please jump in. This is, you know, or anything like either issues that you've had or if you have any questions about anything, don't, don't hold back. So let's, let's talk about fuel-fired kilns. And I've lumped together under fuel gas kilns and wood kilns. In some cases, some of the issues are common to both. In some cases, I'll point out it might be just a wood kiln or just a gas kiln. But they're still, they're in a different category than electric kilns. And one of the, problem, one of the common firing problems with a fuel-fired kiln is a slow temperature rise. And this could be gas or, or wood. It's more common with wood because gas, essentially, you just, if you're not getting a, a, a fast enough temperature rise, it means you're not burning enough gas, so you turn up the gas. That's one possibility. But with wood, you have other issues involved, like the size of the wood. If, you, if you're heating and you're putting in pieces of wood that are too large, they tend to burn slowly, and so you don't get the, the quick heat coming out of the, the kiln because the, the, the pieces are simply too large. So the size of the wood can play a, a, a role in how quickly the kiln is heated up. If the wood is damp, that can also play a role in it. If the, if the wood is damp, it takes extra heat to drive off the moisture, so the damp wood is not going to allow the kiln to heat up as quickly. Um, also, another, thing, another factor is you may not have enough air coming in. You can put all the wood you want in the world in the kiln, and if you don't have enough air and enough air flow, then the wood can't burn fast enough and you can't produce, produce enough heat. 
Related to this also is the next, is the next problem is stalling. And, what this, and this is a fairly common feature in both gas and wood kilns. People report that when you get up to around 2,000 degrees, give or take 100 degrees or so, the, the, the heating rate tends to slow down. And, they, and sometimes you know, they'll blame it and they say, oh, something's going wrong. That may be true, but a big part of it is this is a very natural effect. It's, it's kind of a fundamental law of physics and heat transfer that the higher in temperature you go, the higher you heat something up, the faster it, it wants to cool off. And when you, so when you get up to about 2,000 degrees around in that neighborhood, even though you're pumping a lot of heat into the kiln, the kiln is trying to cool off really fast. It's giving off a lot of heat. So it's kind of like climbing a hill, and as you're climbing the hill, the hill is getting steeper. That's the effect you, you sort of, you're fired. So that as the, the kiln is getting hotter, you can't just put fuel in at the same rate that you have all along because the kiln is losing heat at an ever-increasing rate. So you have, to, you have to speed up the rate that you're increasing the, the fuel because the kiln, the, the kiln is losing heat faster as it gets higher in temperature. So this, this stalling is a natural effect. People, they, they sort of establish a certain rate of, for the gas or a certain rate that they're putting the wood in. And when you finally get up to a certain temperature, give or, you know, roughly 2,000, it's no longer enough fuel because the kiln is, using, is losing heat so fast. So you have to increase the amount of fuel you're putting in. That's a very natural effect. That has nothing to do with the kiln necessarily or the way you're doing it. That's just a natural effect. So that's, that's the natural heat. Natural, nat, I say the natural heating rate. But so the way to overcome that is you have to put in more. You have to burn more fuel. You have to overcome that heat loss. So you have to turn up the gas. You have to increase the stoking rate or change the size of the wood or the amount of wood. Effectively, you have to, you have to burn more fuel to overcome that. And it's a little easier with, with gas because you just turn up the gas. But, it, but with wood, you have all these other factors, the size of the wood, the type of the wood even. some I mean, for instance, like softwood, like pine, burns faster and hotter than hardwood, for example, than oak. So even the type of the wood can affect how, how quickly you're going to get the heat from that amount of wood. So it's a little more complicated with a wood fire kiln. Um, another problem, I, I, as I show here, is poor reduction. And this, could, this, this applies to both gas and, and wood, is that if you're not getting good reduction and you're trying to get reduction, is you have too much air. You getting reduction in a kiln is a tricky balance between getting enough air in the kiln to burn the fuel so that the temperature keeps rising, but not so much so that you're burning the fuel completely because the reduction atmosphere is produced by incomplete burning of the fuel. It's really it's the carbon monoxide from the incomplete burning. So you don't want a lot of air so that you completely burn the fuel. Then you don't produce enough carbon monoxide and you don't get good reduction. So it's a tricky balance between maintaining just the right amount of fuel and just the right amount of air, the balance between the air and the fuel. So the temperature keeps going up, but, you, but you don't, it doesn't go up as fast as it could and you stay in reduction. And again, that's a little easier to maintain steadily in, in gas than in wood. In wood, you tend to cycle. When, you, when you're firing a wood kiln, you put a load of wood in, and it tends to go into very heavy reduction, which is typically when you get the heavy black smoke coming up the chimney, really heavy reduction. And very often, the temperature, if, if it doesn't stop climbing, might actually decrease a little bit, because at that point, you're not burning it. You're not burning much. Then the wood catches, and then the temperature starts going up, and then you go into a lighter reduction. 
In gas, you tend, to, you, you tend to, it's easier to maintain sort of a constant level of reduction and a steady temperature rise. But in wood, you're, you're constantly going from heavy reduction to lighter reduction, heavy reduction. Every time you stoke and you throw a bunch of wood in, until that wood catches, there's not, much, there's not as much burning, so the temperature starts to decline or at least level off, and you go into really heavy reduction because you're really choking, choking. And then the wood catches, and then the heat comes out, and then you go into lighter reduction. But it's, it's, it's basically, it all comes down to balancing the air and the fuel. Excessive reduction I've got here is that you can actually get too much reduction, and, you, and that's inadequate air. So this still goes back to the same issue of, of the balance between the air and the fuel. If, and this is especially true in gas. It's possible, um, and we'll talk about this um, when we come back to defects. This can cause a defect in addition to being a firing problem. As we'll see later on, it can also cause a defect. If you go into too heavy reduction early on, you act, and a gas especially, you don't want to make soot. Soot in general. Soot doesn't do anything for you. It, doesn't, it isn't contributing to the reduction. It's, it means you've, you've gone into too heavy reduction. And in some cases, that can actually cause defects in the, in the pottery. One of the ones is black coring, for example. And I'll show you some examples later on. But, that can be, but the problem is, if you're going into too heavy reduction, then in a sense, you're, you're also you're wasting fuel. You're putting a lot of fuel in there. You're not burning enough of it to get a good temperature rise. And in addition, you're getting soot, which really isn't helping you. So it's, it's, it's very inefficient burning, if nothing else. Is, is the soot, are, are those like, is that a gas or is it, are they solid? I mean, it's, little, solid it's little solid carbon so particles. React. That's why. Well, yeah, there isn't enough. It's it's there's there there simply isn't enough. You're you're you're, you know you're breaking down the organic compounds in in whatever the fuel is, and you're breaking it down to carbon. But you're not reacting the carbon then to produce carbon monoxide or carbon dioxide. You're just making carbon. Yeah. Because you've got really heavy reduction. If if you had more oxygen, it would it would all convert to carbon dioxide or and or carbon monoxide. Why can't the carbon itself like? There isn't enough air to react it. This is the same reason, you know, like you get soot out of a candle, you know, when you hold your flame. Okay. It's the same thing. A candle flame, you get air coming into the center, the outside of the flame, but there's still a portion of the flame in the center that isn't getting enough air. And that's one of the, that's one of the sources of the soot. from a, Even though it's, 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 in, you know, it's out in the open air, you still get soot off a candle flame. That's why. Because there isn't enough air getting into the center to burn all the carbon, to convert it to... Um, to convert it to carbon dioxide, carbon. Wouldn't it just more effectively grab it from the glaze? Pardon? Wouldn't it just more effectively grab, grab it from the glaze or clay? What the oxygen? So, so I mean, yeah. It, it's not. It, it's not free oxygen. It can't actually. It doesn't actually. It, it's not that instantaneous that it can actually just extract it from the clay. Because I mean, this, this it, in other words, it would have to. It, it, it would have to extract it almost instantaneously, and it's, it, it doesn't happen that easily. It's not that. It's not that simple. I mean, I guess I'm wondering why. Why carbon? Carbon monoxide does it, and not soot, but not carbon. When, yeah, when carbon seems like it would be more hungry. No, but carbon. No, but actually, carbon monoxide is very active chemically, and it's a it's a it's a very active oxidizing agent. Okay. Okay. Um, hot and cold spots again are related to the uh, the same kind of thing in the kiln. If I'm getting if I'm not getting good mixing of the gas and of the fuel and the air then I may, have, I may have like streams of air going into the kiln, and I may have places where I've got fuel going into the kiln with not enough air. So where I have air going in, I may be getting, I may be getting you know, better burning, and I might get a hot spot. And if I have another place where I have just fuel and not enough air going in, not, not good mixing, then that could, 
excuse me, that could be a cold spot. So again, it, it goes back to things like the, the hot and cold spots could be poor mixing of the fuel in the air, poor circulation or flow. This could even be part of the kiln design. If I don't have, or even the stacking, if I haven't provided a way for the gases and the fuels to move throughout the kiln and, 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 and hit every part of the kiln uniformly, then I'm going to have certain areas that maybe get more, more exposure and less, and that can also contribute to it. And part of that is also is the stacking, not just the kiln design. It's the stacking. Have I, have I created pathways for the, for the flames? Because in either case, gas or wood, I've got flames moving through the work. Have I provided pathways for the flames to reach all the parts of the kiln? And with, with poor stacking, I could be blocking off certain parts. Another, another, another problem related to, um, to fuel firing is not, and, this, and I've mentioned this already a little bit, is, is non-uniform reduction, not just hot and cold spots, but non-uniform reduction. And that's, that's related to the same thing, where I don't get good mixing of the gas in the air, basically. And the last point I just mentioned is I have half gas use. That could also be high, high wood consumption. So am I, do I seem to be using a lot of gas or a lot of wood, a lot more than what you might think I need to fire the kiln? And basically, that goes back to the same thing, not a, not a good balance between the gas and the air. If I'm burning too much wood, I may be getting temperature rise, but I'm using the wood or the gas very inefficiently. So that still goes back to like gas and air control, the proper balance and then the proper mixing so that I'm, I'm burning the fuel really efficiently. I'm not wasting wood by not burning it efficiently. Any questions on that? Okay, so let's talk, let's talk about problems related to kiln design. So this was operation. This is things you're doing while you're actually running the kiln. In some cases, there may be features of the kiln itself that you're fighting against that, um, that you may or may not be able to overcome. So, uh, so let's talk about electrical again. An, in, an inadequate bisque, and by that I mean a bisque where the, the, the work, you're doing a bisque firing, and the work basically is under bisque, so that maybe you get pin holding later on when you're doing glazed firing. One of, the, one of the, the problems I've seen with this is when you're using the canned programs, the programs that are you know, built into the electronic controller, in some cases, with the clay you're using, the programs may not be adequate. Like, they may be too fast or they may be too short. When they set up those canned programs, usually there are three. There's like a slow, in some cases there's a slow and a medium and a fast rate, and then they have, and then you can do a bisque. Um, but they're still meant to be sort of an average overall, you know, it's an average program. They can't, they can't cover all the possibilities. Well, you might have a clay, for example, that's really dirty. And in order to bisque it, you might have to do a much longer and slower and maybe even a slightly hotter bisque to really clean up the clay to get all the impurities out of the clay. And that, that standard can program simply may not be good enough for it. And I've seen that situations where people are using, like they're either using local clay, let's say for local earthenware, and they're doing it low fire clay, and they simply can't get it clean. They, and they do with the, you know, one of the canned programs, and it simply isn't long enough or slow enough or hot enough to really clean up the clay. In which case, then you need to either write your own program or do it manually to, to modify it for your particular clay. There's also, because it's canned, you can't soak at various temperatures to help. Yeah, you can't. Yeah, it's just you, you're using the, the right. And sulfur and all that get burned out. Right. And so you, 
and there might be a point where you need to hold it to really, and, and, and with, with the clay you're using, the only way to find out is you, you, work, you find it out. And so in that case, the CAN program is inadequate. And I've seen that happen where people you know, they say, well, I, did, I used the, you know, the standard program. Well, in that case for their clay, the standard program wasn't appropriate. It need, they needed to modify the program because they were using not your typical average clay. Um, Underfired or overfired glaze, um, and this again, the, the main reason I've seen, especially, and again, underfired would just mean that again, they might have a glaze where the program isn't, you know, it's not, it's not maybe you need to hold so the standard program again doesn't have all the features to, to adequately allow the glaze to mature. But especially overfiring, this is a fairly common thing with electric kilns, is that if you fire on a fast schedule with an electric kiln, when, you, when you're firing to a certain cone, the faster you fire, the higher the actual temperature is when you reach that cone. Which sounds strange, but because, because cones are sensitive to time and temperature, the combination of, that's what cones respond to. So if I, if I have less time, then in a sense, I need more temperature to make the combination work the same for a cone. And, a good, and this, I'll pass this around, this is a good example. This was, a, this was a pot that was in a cone six firing, and you'll see that the front side that faced the elements is all over fired and blistered, and the back side is just fine. And this is because this was, this was on a fast firing, and so the kiln got too hot. The outside, and 20 degrees is, a, and it might be 20 degrees difference or something in that neighborhood, that's a lot for some of these glazes. And so the one side of the pot got over fired where, the, where the, the side facing away from the elements was okay. And this was because this was on a fast firing. So the problem was, because it was fast, the outside of the pot got a lot hotter than just the other side of the pot. Instead of, allow, instead of firing it more slowly, where the whole pot could, could increase in temperature gradually and stay the same temperature, there was a big difference in temperature between the two sides of the pots. And the answer to that is just slowing it down. I see this effect a lot, especially in schools and in community um, uh, studios where there's a lot of pressure to get a lot of work through quickly. You know, you have a lot of pots and a lot of people, anxious potters, waiting for their pots to come out of the kiln. So they tend to fire the pot. They, they overload the kiln, and they tend to fire the pot too fast. And so actually, then you don't get good mature. You, re, you need to slow it down. This it also comes from the, the basic geometry of an electric kiln. When you think about it, an electric kiln is only heating from the outside of the load. You have this stack of pots, and the, the heat is only coming from the outside. So you have to allow enough time for the heat from the outside to get all the way into the center and, not, and hopefully not overheat what's on the outside and underheat what's on the inside. So you, you can't, if you go too quickly, you, again, you get this big temperature difference between the outside and the, out, and the inside. So the outside pots can be overfired and the inside pots can actually be underfired. So the, the, the solution to that is slow down. Slow down and allow, if you think about it, if I have a whole shelf full of pots, the only way the pots in the center can get hot is by having the pots next to them get hot and then radiate the heat to them. So the heat is essentially traveling in. It's not like in a gas kiln or a wood kiln where you have this river of flame moving through the pots that brings the heat to them. This is just by radiation from the outside. But isn't your exhaust fan no, because the, the, the exhaust, it's not supposed to create a wind tunnel. It's just very gently pulling the air down to the bottom. And very, you know, it's not like zip. It's just very gently pulling just enough, just enough 
to pull it to pull it out, just to keep the air moving. It's it's not creating, you know. So it does, yeah. There is, it is pulling the air down and making the bottom, you know, a little warmer. But it's not it's not it's not a, really like a circulation thing. And just twenty degrees. Twenty degrees is enough on a lot of on a lot of glazes. Because, and this is especially true I found with commercial glazes. Commercial glazes tend to be more temperature sensitive because of the way they're formulated than some of the glazes you can make up. If you make up the glazes from your own materials. You can, you can formulate the glazes that have a pretty wide temperature range. I have a, I have a cone six white glaze, uh, uh, sort of a glossy white, that works great at cone six, and I've taken it up to cone 14, and the same glaze works just fine. Whereas a lot of commercial glazes, they use a lot of fritz. They tend to be, they tend to be more, more narrow temperature range, and, and half a cone or, or, or even a cone more is enough to make them either, either you know, nicely fired or overfired or underfired. Um, let's see what else we had. So, oh, non-uniform temperatures again. Distribution um, with electric, and this this can cause this is and this this is the reason why this is related to a thing is uh, to the kiln design is if you only have one thermocouple in the kiln, then it's only sampling that one point in the kiln. A lot of times, kilns now, and th there's nothing wrong with this, but you have to you have to keep it in mind. A lot of the kilns now, for instance, have three thermocouples: top, middle, and bottom. And they're balancing the temperature between those two. So the controller is automatically sensing if there's a difference, and it compensates for it. You have to keep in mind that if you have only one thermocouple with a controller, and that, again, there's nothing wrong with that, but you have to keep in mind that it's only sampling that one point. So don't, don't, when you're loading the kiln, don't have the part of the kiln that's near the one thermocouple be very different than the rest of the kiln. For instance, don't have a very wide shelf by the thermocouple and very narrow, closely spaced shelves everywhere else, because that wide space is going to heat up faster. It's more open. It's going to heat up faster. And the, the thermocouple will sense that, that it's heating up faster. And so the other thin, closely spaced shelves will be underfired. So just keep that in mind that with the only the one thermocouple, it's only sampling that one little part of the kiln. Okay. Um, problems related to kiln design with fuel-fired kilns. Again, so now we have this. Now this is design: a slow temperature rise or difficulty reaching maximum temperature. This is kind of like what we talked about before, but in this case, it could be actually related to a feature of the kiln. For instance, the, the on a gas kiln, the gas burner simply might be too small. The, in order, when you're firing any kind of a kiln, one of the sources of a lot of the waste heat in the kiln is you have to heat up the kiln. If you think about it, ideally, if you're firing a kiln, what you'd like to do is only heat up the work and nothing else. That would be the most efficient thing. If you could somehow not heat up the shelves and not heat up the kiln and just heat up the pots, that would be super efficient. Well, you can't do that. And as a matter of fact, for a, a typical efficiency, when you talk about how much heat is actually going to the wear of a gas kiln or a wood kiln, it's somewhere between 5 and 10%. 90 to 95% of the heat is wasted, meaning it's heating up the kiln, which doesn't do anything for you. It's heating up the shelves or it's going up the chimney. It's wasted. So, but one of the things that can happen is since I have all these other parts of the kiln that I have to heat up, if the burners are too small, then the whole, in order for the, the, the wear, the work to get to high temperature, the whole kiln has to get to high temperature. So if the burners are too small, I simply can't get the, the rate of temperature increase that I want. Or if it's a wood-fired kiln, for example, the firebox might be too small. When you're building a gas kiln, part of the, 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 the important feature is to make sure your burners are adequate for that volume, that size of kiln, or even for the type of bricks. 
If you're building a kiln that's all constructed out of hard bricks, you have to have more heat input to the kiln than if it's built out of soft bricks where they're insulating and they won't waste as much, they won't absorb as much heat. So you have to take those factors into consideration when you're building the kiln. Similarly, if you're building a wood kiln, you have to design it so the firebox is big enough that it can produce enough heat to heat up the kiln. So those, those are structural elements or parts of the kiln design, actually, that can control it, aside from the way you, you operate it. Another feature can be the air inlets can be too small. Whether it's a gas kiln or a wood kiln, you have to provide enough, enough inlets for additional air to get in to burn all the fuel. So, for instance, if you have gas burners and the holes in the, in the side of the kiln, this, I'm assuming these are venturi burners now, not forced air burners, but if the, if the holes in the kiln are too close to the size of the burner and, the, and sufficient air, additional air, can't get in around the burner, then you won't get enough air to burn all the gas. Or if in a wood kiln, if you don't have adequate air inlets into the firebox to burn all the wood, you won't get adequate burning. So that can all, that's, and that's a design, that's hard to change once you've built the kiln. It's hard to increase the air openings. So that's part of the kiln design. Another feature, the reason why I'm talking, this is also, this is a very common problem with, with, with fuel burning kilns in terms of the kiln design. There are a lot of kilns that are built poorly designed and from the start they've built, they've done something to the kiln to create a kiln that's going to be difficult to fire. Another feature of this is the exit flue opening is too small. At the back of the chamber, where the chamber is, is, in, is going into the chimney for a gas kiln or a wood kiln, if that opening is too restricted, then it can't draw in enough air and it can't burn properly. So all of these, especially, and especially since a lot of gas kilns and, and almost all wood kilns are, are owner built, they're built from scratch, these are all design features that are really important to consider when you're building the kiln. It's not like you buy a commercial kiln. If you buy a commercial, like a gas kiln, they've, they've done some of these calculations and they figured in the size of the openings, but, but very, it's very common to not have that done when you're building, if you're building your own kiln. Um, another, another contributing factor is the chimney could be too short. If the chimney simply isn't tall enough, then you don't create enough draft to pull in enough air to burn all the fuel, and you can't get a good temperature rise. So a lot of, as I say, on these, for gas and wood kilns, there are a lot of features that are ba a basic part of the design of the kiln that are important considerations to make sure that it's going to fire properly when you get around to firing it. Okay, another problem, low gas pressure. Um, and this may, when I, I, I'm, when I say kiln design, this is part of the, the, you know, the complete equipment for the kiln, is the gas tanks may be too small. As with propane, as you're probably aware, in a gas tank, is actually liquid in the tank. And then when you open the tank, the, the liquid evaporates and produces the propane gas that you're using. Well, if the tanks are too small, or the level of the gas in the tank is too low, there's not enough gas there that can boil quickly enough to produce, produce enough gas. So you simply can't generate enough gas from the tanks to get the heating rate that you want. So it's, it, with, get, with propane gas, it's generally, you, you, you generally want to oversize the tank. You never, for instance, with propane, you never run the tank down to empty. When, it's, when, the tank, when the tank starts getting low, maybe down to about a third or even more than that, it's time to refill the tank because there isn't enough gas left in the tank to boil and produce gas fast enough. So in, if the tanks are inadequately sized 
um, you, at some point, and, and the level starts getting low, you, the, you won't be able to get the heating rate you want because you're simply not being able to produce enough gas. And finally, the last one I had here is oxidation during cooling is that if the, when you finish firing the wood kiln or you finish firing the gas kiln, you want to shut up the kiln completely tight and not let any air in because as the kiln cools down, it will tend to draw air into the kiln. And if there, are little, if there are particular holes or spots where the air can leak in and they happen to, to, to lead to a pot, you'll, essentially you get a little jet of air or a stream of air going in and hitting a hot pot and it'll reoxidize the, it'll reoxidize the glazes. Can you close up the space around the Venturi burners? Yeah, normally what you do is you pull the burner back a little bit and you put a plate like a piece of kiln shelf or something and you yeah. completely block the hole, which is another reason why it's a good idea you don't want the burners right up to the face of the kiln. If, if they're, if they're, sometimes they're fixed, um, but you leave a little space there so that you can slide something in there and completely block it. Out here, can you, can you do that out here? On our gas yeah. kiln? Yeah, yeah, I can shut off. Well, I can't shut off the burners on the bottom. I can't get at it, but I can completely block the top. Right, okay. And since it's an upjet, basically, if I can block the top, then it doesn't draw in any more air. We hope you're enjoying the show. Please take a moment to leave a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. It really helps new listeners find the show. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates as new episodes are released. And if you'd like to support the video and podcast production of the Potter's Roundtable, become a patron. Go to patreon.com and search for the Potter's Roundtable. Your support will help us achieve our goal of creating a digital library spanning the ceramic arts for use by educators and artists alike. Thank you for your support. Now let's get back to the show. Now let's talk to about wear defects related to the firing. So now this is we've talked about kiln design and now this now these now these but and and problems with firing that may or may not cause a defect. Now we're talking about actual defects. Things that, that directly, that can result from the firing. And as you'll see as we go along, some of these, this is, what, this is, what, this is what's great about pottery. There are so many ways for things to go wrong. And, and there's a case where you, there are some of these defects are due partially due to the materials, partially due to the way you made it, partially due to the way you fire it, and partially due to the kiln design. So there are, in some cases, there are overlapping causes which in, 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 in certain instances makes it really hard to diagnose the, so, the source of the problem because there's, there might be so many contributing factors. But a, a first one I want to talk about is, is random curve. I'll pass this around. You may have seen this example before. This is a, a great example of dunting. And this is random cracks all over a pot. That's porcelain. And there are several. This is a good example of um, this only happens during the firing. This is a firing-related defect, but it's not only due to the firing. One of the main causes of dunting like this is cristobalite, is the presence of large amounts of cristobalite in the clay. And the, as you may or may not, cristobalite is a form of silica that forms at high temperature, okay? So clay doesn't contain cristobalite, but if it contains a lot of silica, when you heat it at high temperatures for a long period of time, it makes a lot of cristobalite. And then when the pot cools down, the cristobalite causes it to crack. Okay? So, yeah. You're doing an electric killing program, and can you do a whole slow cooling or altering that transition phase? It's just normally, yeah, with, 
to be honest, like I, I don't do you I don't do you do, do you have a fire like cone ten? Okay, because this can happen with cone ten on electric, and so what you would want to do is you'd want to you wouldn't want to it. It's partially related to the clay. Okay, that this is this is a good example. Some clays, if they contain a lot of fine silica, and you hold, you fire it for a long time at high temperature, like cone ten, you're going to make cristobalite, and there's nothing you can do about it. But the only way around that is that is cool it down slowly. And so yeah, if you can control this the cooling, if if you have a clay body and you're firing tends to produce a lot of cristobalite, all you can do is slow, it, slow the cooling down, and, 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 and still may not be enough, but that's all you can do if you can control the cooling, okay? But it comes about because the, the, you see this a lot, especially this effect in wood firings where people do these week-long firings. If you're firing at high temperatures, cone 10, and for a long period of time, you're making cristobalite. You're converting the, the, the silica, the quartz that's in there, to cristobalite, and you're just sitting there making cristobalite. So, one of the, it, so it can be partially related to the clay. If the clay has a lot of fine silica, that's a contributing factor. But the, related to the firing, it's extended firing at high temperatures that, that, add, that contributes to it. Okay? Warping. Warping basically is that when, you, when I talk about warping due to, due to, due to firing, it's non-uniform heating. This is a case where, for instance, I've seen this in gas kilns and wood kilns, especially gas kilns. If you have a pot hanging over the shelf on the outside where the, where the flame is, is apt to hit one, one particular part of a pot, that part can start to shrink and, and move during the firing before another part does, and it'll never recover. If one part of the pot starts to shrink and, and bend before, or move before the other one, yeah, the, 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 the second part may later on catch up in terms of temperature, but it can never, it can never completely go back to the, the, round, the perfect round shape. So the, ideally, just like with everything in ceramics, you want all the parts of a piece to dry at the same rate. You want all the parts of the piece ideally to, to, to be fired or heat up at the same rate because roughly half of the shrinkage that occurs with clay occurs during the firing. So you don't want part of the pot shrinking before another part of the pot. It can lead to cracking. If not cracking, it can at least lead to warping. So it's non-uniform heating. Slumping is kind of related to that. It's basically over-firing. As you're probably aware, when clay gets heated up to a certain temperature, depending on the clay, it actually, there's actually a, a, some beginning of melting that's occurring in the clay body. And the clay becomes what's called pyroplastic. It actually becomes soft because of the heat. Well, if you keep heating it up, then the clay can actually slump. You can melt any kind of clay if you heat it hot enough. And so, like some, I see this a lot in porcelains in particular. Um, cone 10 porcelains, if they're overfired, um, they're, they're in the improper place in the kiln or they're too close to the bag wall or something, they actually start to slump. They may not totally melt, but they sort of droop or they slump or they sag a little bit. And that's just basically overfiring. The clay has gotten soft when it's gotten fired. Bloating is another issue that's, that's partially related to the firing, not completely, but it can be due to inadequate bisque. It can be due to the fact that, that bloating, I'll pass this around, this is a good example of bloating. Basically, you end up with bubbles in the clay. What's happening is gas, the, the clay is getting soft and gas is being produced inside the clay and the clay is actually rising up the same way dough rises. When, you, when dough rises and, the carbon, and the, the carbon dioxide gas comes off and makes the dough puff up, it's exactly the same mechanism that's happening with the clay. 
The clay is getting soft. Something in the clay is producing gas, and it actually puffs up the clay. And you get these blisters, these bulges on the outside of the clay. But then, and if you break them in half, you can see that it actually does almost look like dough, where you've got these like hollow spots where the gas has expanded it. So this can be due, this can be due to inadequate bisque. If I haven't burned off all the impurities, especially sulfur, during the bisque, then when I heat it up to high temperatures, that sulfur gas comes off and, and produces the bloating. It can also be produced by extra heavy early reduction. If I'm doing a reduction firing with gas or wood, and I go into really heavy reduction early, some of that carbon can actually get trapped in the clay, and then it burns off later and produces gas. This was actually, this was an electric kiln fire, and this is the particularly dirty clay. Yeah. And this was electric fire. Also, you notice it's pretty thick. So, it, it was, and it wasn't adequately bisqued. And this clay is known to bloat anyway, because it has a lot of sulfur in it. And so, when it got up to about cone six, or a little above cone six, the gas was coming off. The clay was starting to get a little soft. And so, you get these, these, these bubbles that were actually produced in the, in the clay wall. So, you're saying a clay like that, you would slow bisque or... Or extended, or that, and that, that would go back to, to try to clean it up. And in some cases, you may not be able to clean it up in a reasonable period of time. If, if there are large particles of whatever the impurity is in this clay, you might have to biscuit for 24 hours. And at some point, you say, how long do I have to biscuit to clean it up? You might say, it's just not worth it. So it's possible that, that from a practical point of view, you might not be able to biscuit long enough or thoroughly enough to make it work, just depending if the clay body is really dirty and has, you simply, you say, I'm not gonna biscuit for 24 hours, I'm done, you know. And so, you, you, theoretically you could, if you were willing to fire it long enough, you could clean it up, but from a practical point of view, you, just, you, you can't. Yeah, you just, you can't. Is that one of those clays that you couldn't biscuit? No, this one you can't. Well, part of the problem here was it was thick. See, if it had been, you notice there weren't, many, there weren't as many bloats up by the rim, if, this, if this, this, this one you can clean up, but again, it depends on, you know, clays are variable. They're made with matching materials from the ground. I've seen this particular clay where one batch of the clay works fine and another batch bloats like crazy because of the variability in the raw materials. So we, we had this at another studio that I was at, and we worked out a bisque schedule that seemed to work pretty well for Cone 6 to clean it up. And then we, got, we put a new order in, and it was a new batch of the clay, and it, everything bloated. So we had, and, and, and after a while, it was too much trouble chasing around trying to readjust the biscuit, so we stopped using it. Because the clay was too variable. So that was a clay you ordered, not even? Yeah, no, that was a clay, this was a commercial clay that we ordered. Um, but it, it's, it has a lot, of, a lot of impurities in it. Oh, did you say, like, it, does it, does the, do the, glass, the gases work themselves out better if the, the pot is, the walls are thin? Or, and, and, and also well, if, they, if they're thinner, when you're doing the bisque, then they can, the gases can escape more readily from the wall. If they're thick, again, think about the heating. If I have a really thick pot, it takes a longer time for the center of the wall to get hot. So if I, fi if I have a really thick pot and I don't allow the center of the wall to get hot, then those, those impurities are still there in the center of the wall when I do the, the glaze firing later on, and then they will start coming out. So I've got it like and this is true for bisque in general, when I'm doing a bisque firing, I have to bisque for the thickest pieces in the firing. 
I may have thick and thin pieces, and I say, oh, I'll do kind of an average firing. You should be bisking for whatever the thickest pieces are in the firing to make sure that the centers of the walls are, the, are, are getting thoroughly bisked. Otherwise, the centers are not getting bisked. They're not getting adequately bisked. Does that have anything to do with also that the gas, the distance the gases have to move out? Or that's, is that just a minor effect? That, that in, the, in the center, we get the particles there that are burning off to move through a thicker... Oh, sure. And it takes longer for them to get out. So there's more of a barrier. So it's a combination of the temperature and just the barrier. It's harder for them to get out. So that's why we got the rim. It's the same thing at the rim, right? Because it's thinner. It's yeah. And, and if you think about it also, with most firings, you're, in, in most cases, you, people don't do a hold. The temperature of the kiln is just steadily going up and up and up and up. So as this is getting fired, not only is, is, is the gas trying to get out, but the, the, the clay on the outside is getting denser because it's, it's getting hotter and hotter. So the clay is getting denser. So it's becoming increasingly more difficult for the gases to get out because the, ins the outside is shrinking and getting denser. So it, everything's, as the temperature is continuing to go up, everything's making it harder for the gases to go out. If I did a hold, like you mentioned before, if I got up to a certain temperature and held, then the clay is staying the same, and I just sat there and, and, and give the, the gases a chance to get out. But in most cases, we don't fire like that. We just kind of take it up. Well, if you were to do it, what temperature would you do it at? I'd have, I, I couldn't pick. I'd have, it would depend on what the impurity is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're okay. not even going to write that piece of wisdom down. <laughs> <laughs> okay, another, another firing-related defect is black coring. I don't know if you've ever seen this, black coring. Um, and this is a good example of it. And basically, this, can be, this, this has multiple causes. But one of the causes could be I might have a clay that has a lot of organic materials in it. And if I don't completely burn it out during the bisque, I leave those organic materials in the center. And then when I high-fire it, they get trapped. The carbon basically gets trapped. It can't get out. Or the, the way it's related to firing is if I'm firing in reduction, if I go into really heavy reduction early in the firing, at that point, the, the clay is still porous, right? I still got the bisque wear. So the carbon can actually get into the clay from the atmosphere in the kiln. And then if I take it up too fast, I don't give it a chance to, get, to come back out and get burned out. And the, one of the problems with black coring is it weakens the structure of the clay. This was a large bowl. And all we did after it was fired, all we did was bump the rim and the whole thing fell apart. Because you can see the whole center portion of the, of the wall is this black cord region. So that's a good example of what black coring looks like. So it's either, it's either carbon that was in the clay to begin with that you didn't clean out, or as a result of the firing, carbon that was able to get into the center of the kiln and then it didn't get a chance to get cleaned out. So this, I mentioned earlier when we were talking about firing problems, that if you go into too heavy reduction too early, you don't get a good temperature rise. Well, not only do you not get a good temperature rise, but then you also, you can black core your pieces. Another, another I have glaze running here, overheating or rapid heating, and I touched on this earlier, is that this is a case where if I fire, if I fire a, and this is mostly in electric kilns, if I fire the kiln too quickly, basically, then the final temperature that I, that I arrive at is actually higher than it would be if I fired more slowly. 
It's a weird effect. So, and I've seen this, I've had a number of cases where, where teachers have come to me and they, you know, teachers like in, in a grade school or middle school, they have, they're under a lot of pressure to get the pots through. And they'll say, well, I had my cones in the kiln and the, and the cones, I was watching the cones and the cone six went down. So I shut up the kiln and all my glazes ran. And so the first question I asked is, well, what firing schedule did you use? And they said, oh, it was a fast firing. Well, that's the reason. Because again, cones respond to time and temperature, right? That's heat work. So if there was less time, then there had to be more heat to give the same heat work. And therefore, so they, they, the kiln actually got to a higher temperature at the end when the cone six went down. Cone six still went down, but there was more temperature, higher temperature, and all the glazes ran. And again, they're using mostly commercial glazes in, in the schools, and, they tend, and they, these tend to be, they, or they can be, more temperature sensitive to begin with. So all the glazes run. So I'd say, you know, just slow it down. And they're under pressure to get the pots through. They've got, a, you know, they might have hundreds of pots that they have to fire through. So I said, the only solution is slow it down. And then, then you don't get that, that temperature increase and then everything works fine. Pinholing, there's a lot of different people use the term differently. What, what, what I, when I think of pinholing, I think this is a defect where, and I don't have a good example here, because it, 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 frankly, the only, the only place I've seen it happen to any significant extent is with earthenware. Pinholing is due, true pinholing is due to inadequate bisking. And what happened, you know, and you're, you're probably aware that with, with, with earthenware, like 06, 05 firings, you're basically bisking at almost the same temperature that your glaze firing. So the problem, well, the, the problem comes in that if I don't completely bit, thoroughly bisque fire the work, then I turn around and I glaze fire it. I'm not firing at a much higher temperature. If I haven't cleaned out the clay a lot to start, then when I do the glaze firing, I'm completing the cleaning out of the clay. Well, now I've got gas coming out of the clay and it's bubbling up through the glaze. And so pinholing, typical pinholes in a glaze look like little, literally like you stuck a straight pin into the soft glaze. There'll be a tiny little hole and you'll see sort of a rounded top to the hole. And it literally looks like you stuck like you had icing on a cake and you stuck it with a pin. Because this is a path where bubbles were, were, were streaming up through the glaze. Have you ever seen, like when you pour a soda or a beer in a glass and you get these bubble trails from the side of the glass? That's what's happening in the glaze. You get these little bubble trails that are coming out of the clay and they're streaming up through the glaze and they create this little tube or this little pathway. In some cases, I've seen this on Mayolica ware, where the path isn't like this. And, if you're all familiar with Miolica, it's typically it's light colored or, or colored pigments or colored designs painted over a white background glaze. And you'll see white spots in the colored areas on the Miolica. That's, that's essentially the same mechanism because that's the gas bubbling up through the liquid white clay, the white glaze, and making the white glaze flow out on top of the colored glaze. So you'll see, if, we, if you see Miolica work that has little white spots on top of the color, that's the same effect. They didn't actually leave holes, but the white glaze was, was coming up through the color and then flowing out on the surface and making little white dots. And it's the same thing, it's under bisking. So this is one of the reasons why if you do use, and I don't know too many people that make their own low fire glazes. Most people that I know that are firing low fire, they buy commercial glazes. But this is one of the reasons why it's very common. They recommend you bisque at 04 and you glaze fire at 06. So you bisque fire at a higher temperature than you're going to glaze fire. That, that, there's a better chance of guaranteeing that you've cleaned out the clay 
If, so if you biscuit 04 and then you go back and glaze fire, it's already been to that higher temperature. So chances are the clay is clean and you won't still have gas coming out and bubbling up through the glaze. Okay? And, I say, and, it, and if you think about it, because of that, it almost, you almost, it's very rare to see it with cone 6 firings and very rare to see it with cone 10 because with cone 6 and cone 10, you're glaze firing at a lot higher temperature then you're doing the bisque, right? So by the time you get to the glaze melting temperature, you've already heated it up a lot past the normal bisque temperature and you've cleaned out the clay. So the, the, the problem is where the, where the two temperatures, the bisque and the glaze are so close together, if you have an adequate, but by the time you get to cone 10, you've, gone th you've, gone, you've repeated the bisque and you've gone to a lot higher temperature before the glaze even ever starts to melt. So there's been a lot more time and opportunity for the glaze to continue to, or the, the clay, to clean itself out before the glaze ever starts melting and, and, and ever starts being able to trap any gases. So, I mean, I've, I can't say I've ever seen pinhole, true pinholing with cone 10 and very rarely with cone 6, very rarely, just because there's, there's more time for the, for the clay to get clean before the glaze starts trapping the gas. Um, blistering. Again, people use different terms for some of these things. This is why sometimes it can be confusing. Um, blistering, to my way, is basically overfiring. This is where if I overfire a glaze, the glaze is actually, this, I don't see this a lot with cone 10. I see mostly this with cone 6 and earthwood. This is a good example. The glaze is actually boiling. And what's happened is if I overfire the glaze, I'm actually cooking something. The glaze is, I've, I've heated it up to high temperature. The glaze has melted. And now I'm actually overfiring where some ingredient in the glaze is actually cooking out of the glaze. And it's making the glaze boil on the surface of the pots. And so now when the pot cools down, I end up with these, with these, these popped bubbles or blisters, typically like, like, like little craters with sharp edges around them where there have been popped bubbles. And that's usually due to overfiring. And this is a good example. The other thing you can tell on, on a... On a on, to distinguish that is very often the glaze, if it's been slightly overfired, will start to show signs of flowing. There are other causes of, of blisters like this, but in this case, the glaze has started to flow, which tells me also that it was high temperature that caused the blistering, not some other cause. And this is, this is fairly common with Gerstle borate glazes. Gerstle borate and borates, you can cook, you, basically you overfire it, you're actually cooking one of the ingredients right out of the glaze. And it's, it's producing gas, and, it's, and the, at this point, the glaze is fairly soft, so it can actually bubble and boil. And then you cool it down, and the, and they, 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 the, the blisters, the pop, the bubbles get trapped on the surface. And you can see on that, see sort of the flow lines in that one? You can see where it flowed. So that's a good indication that... Um, that it wasn't something else that caused the blistering. It was overfiring because you can tell the glaze was pretty fluid. What else could cause blistering? Pardon? What else could cause blistering? Well, in some cases, with some glazes, when you're heating up the glaze and things are melting, gases might come off and, some thi and it might produce some, some, some bubbles. But in that case, it's, and then if they stay there, that's underfiring. But usually they're not as, from what I've seen, they're not as sharp as this. this the combination of the fact that you can see where it flowed mm -hmm. and the fact that that tells me that it, got, it was hot, that it wasn't over. This is, this is, it's shiny, so the glaze is apparently mature, and it flowed, which tells me that maybe it got a little too hot, and the blisters to me says that this is over fire. 
If the glaze was, if a glaze is underfired, even if it's a, a gloss glaze, typically it's matte. It'll be, it'll be, it'll look kind of more stony or underfired. In that case, you might, it, depending on the, the, the what's in the glaze, you might see some little craters or things where one particular ingredient has started to melt and maybe produce some gas and bubbles. But the glaze overall would look underfired. But in this case, all the the other features tell me that it was overfired. The flowing and the fact that it's it's glossy, so it was mature. Too mature. And it's thick. And it's thick. Yeah. 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 yeah this is this is, yeah. This, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this would have been a great great case for black coring, except that it was fired in an electric kiln. Why did that black piece that had its face to the fire? This one? Oh, I'm sorry. Which? Yeah. This one here? Yeah, why didn't that one blister? Why did that just bubble? It's thin. Okay. It's really thin walled. It's really thin. Good. Then good. Yeah, I'll, I'll pass this. This one I didn't. I didn't pass this around. I'll pass, this is another example of bloating, but with, I didn't break it in half. But this is, and also the nice thing about this also has some nice crawling on the bottom. But there's some blistering that occurred, or that bloating that occurred, and it didn't break through. It just the the the, the clay bloated. And if you look at the bottom of that, you see it's a mixture of two clays. The dark clay. This was like like swirled together and thrown. The dark clay bloated. You might be able to if you knew what temperature to take it to, yeah. yeah, so that you weren't, yeah, you might, yeah, you might be able to, and just let the blisters sort of melt out or just hold it. Yeah. Just take it to a little door temp and hold it, and maybe then you, can, you know, if it can flow out. Yeah. One of the problems though is, if, depending on how long it's been blistering, is the composition of the glaze has changed. Yeah. So it may not, it may not, this, in this case, it, that might have worked, Ruby, that might have worked in this case because it's still pretty fluid. Um, but yeah, it's possible that you could just hold it and let them flow out and, and you know, at a little lower temperature, yeah. if you could figure out what temperature that was. So that was, anyway, so this is the two clays, and that happens to be this same clay blended with another one. And so the clay, it, even in that case, it bloated. Yeah, a bloated crawl then has been Yeah, isn't that a nice pot? Yeah, <laughs> one of my favorites, yeah. And it's not mine. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, another another uh, another defect related to firing is cratering, and that this is this is what I was just talking about. That's basically underfired. You can still end up with with like these these craters um, that look like popped bubbles, but generally, and that's there, and there might be one ingredient in the glaze that has because as as you heat up a glaze, there are multiple ingredients in the glaze. Not everything melts at the same temperature. So it's very common for one ingredient or part of the glaze to start to melt, and then as the heating continues, then more of it melts and more of it melts, and finally the whole glaze melts. Another defect is, and this is related to, as I say, a rough surface, and it's related, is that that's underfired. Typically, you'll see, you'll, if you see a glaze that it just, it's supposed to be a gloss glaze, or even it's supposed to be satin, and it looks kind of granular, and it looks sort of rough, typically that's underfired. It hasn't had a chance to completely melt. Carbon trapping. This is a case where 
Um, carbon trapping is, is, I don't know whether we have, I don't think we have an example, I didn't bring an example along. Uh, but carbon trapping is literally, this, this, come, you don't, this is only for fuel-fired kilns, whether you're wood-firing or gas-fired. If you produce a lot of soot very early in the firing, it's possible, and, when the, and at that point in the firing, very early, the, the clay is still very porous, right? It's, it's like the bisque clay. And also, the glaze is very porous. The, the glaze is just a layer of dried powder on the surface of the, of the pot. So if you produce a lot of soot at that point in the firing, these soot particles actually penetrate into that layer of glaze, and they can actually even go down into the clay. And then if you, heat it, if you were to heat it up really quickly, it's possible to trap those soot particles in the clay or in the glaze, and they show up as black or gray areas in the glaze. That's carbon trapping. And it's possible, actually, you, you may have heard of chino glazes, and there's a, there's a, there's a form of chino glazes, they're a type called carbon trapped chinos, where you, per, you want to do that on purpose. You, if, typically, carbon trapped chinos have soda ash in them, and what they do is they produce a layer of, of, when the glaze starts to melt, it produces a layer on the surface of the glaze that melts very early and intentionally traps the carbon. Normally the carbon, if you heat it up reasonably slow, even if the carbon went in, if you heated it up at a reasonable rate, the carbon would, would burn off and have a chance to go back out. But if you heat it up quickly, and if the surface of the glaze melts, it traps it and it can't, it can't be removed. So there are cases where you intentionally want to produce a lot of soot early, and that's about the only one is for carbon trapping, carbon trapped chinos. But you can carbon trap in almost any glaze if you, if you go into really heavy reduction and then you heat it up really quickly. I've seen carbon trapped celadons, for example, and they're really ugly because it's just this gray black trapped in what would otherwise maybe be a nice clear green. Now you've got these sort of semi-opaque gray patchy areas. Um, so other than when you're trying to do it intentionally, it's, it's heavy reduction too early and too long, and then, and then a very rapid heat up where you didn't give it a chance for the carbon to burn, to be removed, to come back out. Um, can, how do you, is, uh, does it manifest itself differently in the clay, like if you broke it open? Like, yeah, then, you'd get, then you could get this. Yeah, I mean, from, from, if, from if it came in the clay to begin with. Like, I'm thinking if it came in the clay, it would be like more towards the center, and then if you if it carbon track, it would like, be more like towards the outside. Not necessarily, because when you heat it back up, you're still gonna, you still, depending on the thickness of the wall, yeah. you still might, let's say, if it, even if it's in carbon trapping, you still might give a chance for some of the carbon to, to burn back off. So the last carbon, the, the carbon in the center is going to be the last to go, whether it was there from originally or whether it was there because you put it in there. It's going to be the last to burn out. Um, bleached areas, local, and I say local oxidation, it's possible, in, this is in reduction, where you're firing reduction and you can get areas on a pot where Part of the, and I'll, this is a good example, or this is a bad example, or a good example. This is a pot that's part reduced and part oxidized. This is actually from my kiln that I had in Maine. And this is what, this was a, this is a content stoneware. This is what the glaze was supposed to look like. And I have the, the iron spots coming through the glaze. Well, the other side of the pot got oxidized. And so this was a, this was a I think a, a very, this was either transparent or a very pale celadon. But this, this half of the pot basically got oxidized, and this side of the pot got reduced. And that was because this was, it was in, not in a good location in the kiln, and I also had an air leak during cooling. 
So you can get areas where it looks, I'm calling it bleach, but you can get areas where I don't, in this case, I don't know whether it didn't, I can't tell whether it didn't get reduced in the beginning or whether it got reoxidized at the end. I can't tell offhand by looking at that. But basically the kiln wasn't sealed properly. And I, and I so I, I don't know in this case, it could be either one. I either, either I didn't get good reduction early on on that side of the pot or it was a leak or both. But that's an example. It, it, and it's big enough where you can see the, the, both effects on one pot. Very often, if it's a smaller pot, the whole pot will just be poorly reduced. And the last thing I had here was clear matte glazes, is that a, a, a true matte glaze is matte, uh, if it's properly formulated, is matte because crystals have formed in it during cooling. And this is in most cases. So if I, if I have a matte glaze and I cool it down too quickly and I don't allow it chances for the, for the crystals to form, then it's possible to end up with a clear glaze. And I had a, and I, a great example of that. I was building a kiln in my studio in Maine. And when I moved up there, I took glaze recipes with me that I knew worked. I had been firing them for years. And I had a really nice stony white matte glaze. And, so what I, and I did this on purpose. I thought, well, now that I've built this new kiln, I'll fire these glazes that I've had years of experience with, and I can see, I know it's, now if something goes wrong, I know it's not the glaze, it's something, a problem with my kiln. So I did a bunch of pots with this stony white glaze, and it, they all came out looking like celadon. Clear, pale green. And I know, and this was my stony white mat, and so, I, and so as soon as I saw that, I knew it was a cooling problem. The kiln had cooled down too quickly. I didn't fire it down. And this was up in Maine, it was cold outside and the wind's blowing around and it cooled down too quickly. So I, I made up another batch. In this case, I fired down, whereas I turned the gas down and, let, and, I, and I got my nice stony wets, mats. But it was, I had never seen that effect to that extreme before. It literally went from opaque, white, matte-looking surface. In this case, I had a clear, glossy, pale green. And the whole difference was I hadn't allowed enough time for the crystals to form to turn it into the matte glaze. So, and this is, and this is, this, and this, this is true even, even aside from, this is, this is another reason why even in, in electric kilns, this has nothing to do with atmosphere, electric kilns tend to cool off very quickly. They're made with insulating brick, they don't hold the heat, and so it's, in some cases it's very difficult to get good matte firings out of an electric kiln because they still require crystals to form during cooling, and if they cool down too quickly then you don't get enough, you don't get enough of the crystal formation. So there's a case where if you have a glaze and it's supposed to be matte and it's not coming out the way you think, try, putting, try controlling the cooling or at least slowing down the cooling or do a hold at the end. Drop it down a little bit if you can. Slow down the cooling at the end. And I think that's about all I had for this. I, and this is not without... now you know, And I think we've talked about this before. In other sessions, we've talked about defects that are primarily related to, to the clay, although we've touched on a few of those today, where clay, the clay can contribute to some of these. And we've also talked, at another time, we talked about defects that are related to the glaze, that again, may be partially related to the firing, but the primary cause is something due to the glaze, like, like let's say, crazing or, 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 or shivering or something like that. It's probably a, it's a glaze, glaze issue. Um, and I think what we'll probably do another session, we may do another session sometime in the future where we talk about those kind of defects again. But the, I wanted to focus today on the ones that are primarily related to, in some way connected to the firing.
The Potter's Roundtable is brought to you by Washington Street Studios and our patrons. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, give us a five-star review, and tell your friends. If you want to learn more about Washington Street Studios and shared studio memberships, please visit our website at www.hfclay.com. Thank you, and we'll see you again next time on the Potter's Roundtable.